This is it, people. This is what you've been waiting for. This is Everyday Celebrity Podcast. The podcast for everyday people with everyday problems trying to find everyday solutions to accomplish everyday goals. Let's start the show. Hungry for you, tell me where you wanna eat. Hey, somewhere where we can be loud. You know, I don't do this. Hey, I know you had a long day. Chill, I'll rip on your feet. How you talk to me smooth? I like that. I know what you used to, I'm not like that. You showing me the right signs. What's your zodiac? Mmm, reciprocate the energy. I give it back. Look, you got too much on you, and I'm vulnerable, so show me that. Telling me your feelings in the present make me unwrap. Hey, your body like a boomerang, it always make me come back. No, you got me open, but I try not to get too attached. You be choosing. Yeah, you heard right. I chose you for Fijiana. Now let me book a flight. A flight? Ooh, tell me what I need to grab. We could go to paradise and then come back and get a bag. I'm a track star, remember? We could run it up. I got Chanel Telfar. Baby, what you trying to step? I already get you feeling. Now we in a dream. You let me go first. You yeah. know how to treat a queen. I could love you, touch you, kiss you, girl. You everything I need. I'm trying to grow with you. I'm your garden planet. to another episode of Everyday Celebrity Podcast, No One Podcast in Oakland, No One Podcast in the Bay Area. Tonight, we have a special, special guest straight from Oakland. From San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco, my bad. But the earth is my turf, so it's all good. <laughs> Stunner, man. Welcome to the show. Come on, man. We outside. How you feeling? Great. I'm feeling great. You know, um, we now- got the same name? Yeah. I re- Jordan. Yeah, I recognize that. That's my name, too. Awandi, that's my name as well. Wait, I bro. doubt it. There's only one Awandi. 
Hold on. There's only one Owandi in the world. Hey, hold on. <laughs> hold on here. <laughs> All right, so we just heard uh, your, one of your new singles. And it was given LL Cool J uh, Do It, Do It, Do It, Do It uh, vibes. Yes, I think like that. And then that one song, uh, I think Diddy produced them. I forgot the original uh, Make Sure the Song, but it go like, uh, uh, I, I forgot. Oh, don't be mad at me. If y'all mm-hmm. see this, don't beat me up. But it's like, uh, touch me, tease me. I believe it was Case. Kiss yeah, that was Case and Foxy and Brown. Rest. I actually got two songs called Touch Me. So I, me and my homie, we kind of did like a cover to the original. Uh-huh. And then um, this one, me and this young lady named Fijiana, we recorded this about last year, maybe 2021. And then, you know, just put it out. She had a dope vision for it, tight. I mean, we wanted to the song to be very uh, sexually suggested. Mm. I mean, not taking it all the way there, but just teasing you, you know? Did you did you write her lyrics? Uh, we we just uh, collaborated together. So mm. she's a dope artist. She got a dope pen. She danced. She's a dope performer. She black? No, nah, she Fijian. Fijian. I think Indo, Indo-Fijian or... I don't even know what that is. Yeah, from like Fiji or some shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Where they where they got the water at? You know what Mm. I mean, so you know, man, she had a dope uh, idea. She brought the beat to the studio. Mm -hmm. Then I had the had the session, and then we locked in. And I was like, man, we're not leaving the studio. We're not leaving the booth until it's finished. So we just bounce energy off of each other. Mm -hmm. And then you know, I had my lady there too. She was dropping ideas and. Oh, your lady was there. Yeah, for sure, man. How does that uh, like a sexual song like that? You know what I'm saying? If I was recording, I would have to touch on the girl and like feel her titties and shit to get the little vibe going. Yeah, of course. And as long as you did that happen, as long as you're transparent about that, you're gonna win. I mean, <laughs> me and Fijiana is more platonic, <laughs> but you know, like in situations, it's been like that. Sometimes you you do need to be in the vibe. Mm-hmm. And if a woman consented to it, you in the mood, you mm-hmm. in the moment, it's going like that, then you're gonna win. And you know me, I'm a transparent individual. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? I don't put no labels on myself, but a lot of people walk around saying they peas, they players, but they lying to women. It's just mm-hmm. like, that don't really make sense. Me, I'll just be transparent and transparent and honest. So mm-hmm. in any situation, I could have my woman in the studio while making a song like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we could have multiple women in the studio while making a song like that. Yeah. I feel like it's just all about temperament, who you around, but what type of foundations you set. You know what I'm saying? So a smooth dude like you, your name Jordan. You could be touching on some breastesses while you've been doing your bestesses, making a hit in the studio. You feel me? Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Philly, city of brotherly love. Mm. So this podcast is about <clears throat> dissecting people's lives. You know what I'm saying? I don't really ask questions that normal podcasters ask because mm. I like details. You know what I'm saying? I, I I like to see like when you look at a cell phone. You, I'm curious about the in the inside of the cell phone. How how does it work? How is this? My search how is how is this screen? <laughs> how is this screen uh, coming on? You know what I'm saying? What's going on inside? You know what I'm saying? So that's what this podcast is about. I like that. So let's start at the the beginning. You say you're from San Francisco, born and raised, but the earth is my turf. Meaning mm. I'm energetically connected and well respected in in every place because like that's what I give the respect. So you know. Uh, Born and raised in San Francisco, California. What part? Uh, Hayden Webster, a.k.a. Page Street, a.k.a. Filmo. Then I moved to uh, Hunters Point. You know what I'm saying? These two different uh, opposite sides of the city or different parts of the city. But, mm. you know, definitely a diverse upbringing. And then, you know, living in one of the lowest socioeconomic places in city of, uh, in San Francisco, a city that uh, has the eighth biggest wealth disparity, the third most billionaires in the uh 
in the world, but you know, a city that also yeah, that's crazy. I I heard I heard it was the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they have San Francisco has the most billionaires living yeah. in one. Uh, metropolitan city Crazy, in the United right? States. Mm-hmm, yep. So it's like, you know, that was, a, I call San Francisco a Rubik's Cube because with any turn, you have a new part of the city. You have mm-hmm. a new outlook on everything. So, you know, I, I grew up in a place that was the lowest socioeconomic area, but I was always into the academics, always focused, had discipline. Shout out to my uh, mom and my grandma keeping me on one, which propelled me to get an academic scholarship at 10 years old to one of the most prestigious schools. So simultaneously, I was, living in one of the lowest areas uh, that they said. You know, I, I loved where I'm from. Shout out to the Mo. Shout out to the Point. Shout out to everywhere in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Did you have siblings? Uh, not on... Um, I didn't grow up with siblings. Okay. My dad, he has five kids. I just met my dad three years ago. Mm. Funny, you from Philly. We went to Philly this year and watched the Niners and the, Fort, uh, the Eagles play oh, in yeah. the playoffs. It was a dope experience. Who won that game? Uh, you know, so define win. Who was happy in the locker room? I was was happy regardless. So that's all that That matters. That means Philly. I got the bond with my dad. You feel me? I was having fun. I was making some Philadelphia Eagles. How did how did the Eagles have more points by the end of the game? But I was making them mad. That's crazy, huh? Mm. But you know we're gonna see y'all again. He's probably talking shit. It's it. You you gotta be careful out there. Them Philly uh, fans. They they. Come on, man. You see, I went. They'll put the paws on you. Hey, look, look. I went nigga boxing. Everybody in Philly's a hey, boxer. I went by myself. <laughs> hey, you see how I look, man. I was good out there, man. By the time I was leaving, <laughs> we met a whole bunch of beautiful women, me and Pops. And then on he was a he's an Eagles fan. And on top of that, we was good vibes. You know what I'm saying? And when it did get into something like that, you feel me? I stood on what I stood on, you know what I'm saying? Mm. But you know, we pushing love and positivity. I got love for all my Philly fans. It's it's just a mutual respect. And mm-hmm. I think when you come from a place of good intentions and you meet anything head on that might try to deviate you from your initial purpose, you know, and that's in life. And in this situation, if it recalls a, a physical altercation, usually you become the victor when you're not trying to instigate or you're yeah. not the aggregator. Agri- agri- uh, when I was out there, I was just having fun. And then when people met me, I just stood my ground. Somebody mm-hmm. hit me with their car out there. I mean, I had to uh, push their window in, man. And then I had to, I was really? like, what's up? Bruh, I'm walking Damn. in the street. I'm just walking, you feel me? This is after the game? This is before the game. Oh, you feel okay. me? And this is before like the so the 49ers got like one of the biggest fan bases in the world mm. for football. I'll say the Raiders, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I'm being I mean, I'm talking about winning fan bases. No shade to the Raiders, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm talking about Raiders is loyal, the most loyal. Mm. Niners probably the most biggest, you know what I mean? But I love the Raiders. That's my second favorite team. But uh what you call it? Um you know, the Niners mob, they went by themselves. Like, they every game, away game, they, they have, like, a whole coalition where they meet and have a tailgate, and then they walk to the stadium, the opposing stadium. So I missed that. You feel me? I was chilling, so I'm mobbing by myself, me and my dad. So when I'm uh, just chilling, this car, like, kind of walked beside me, they, and they bumped me with their car. I'm like, what the heck? And I just smashed their, uh, that rear view mirror on the side or the side, side mirror, and then dude rolled his window down, and I was getting in the car to pull him out. But I'm like, man, that's not... You know, and I just I just shot some verbal. You know what I mean? And he did he hit you by accident? Nah, it was like somewhat intentional because it mm. was like you know he could have where we was at he could have went around, but you mm. know he didn't have no remorse. You know how it be. You know, but was it, it is a white man? Uh, I think it was like uh maybe Latino. Okay. Yeah. So, but he looked like he uh came from a culture that was black. You know, Philly is Philly is kind of like the Bay in that way where you have uh, cultures that intermingle. You mm. know what I mean? So you know. But it was, it was, you know, I stood my ground. You know, I let him know, stop playing with me. He'd probably get hurt out here. But I'm not even that type of individual. Mm. Just, I just want to preserve my life. 
Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, a, a dope question I heard David Banner propose to the world is, did Malcolm X and Martin Luther King uh, actually finish their dream? You know, did they live out their purpose? You know what I'm saying? Did they execute what they needed to? And he answered no, because they didn't get to see it coming to fruition. And also, they, you know, they, they passed away, unfortunately. So, you know, I want to do what I need to to preserve my life. So, but other than that, yeah, let's get off that, man. <laughs> yeah, we got to talk about that. I like the Eagles. The Eagles dope. Jalen uh, Hurts signed one of the hugest contracts in the world. I think other than Pat Mahomes. Well, I don't want to talk about the fucking Eagles, nigga, or the, or the 49ers. Because I don't man. like neither of them teams. Oh, man. It happens. <laughs> but. I love them. So you didn't grow up with siblings. You did. You said, did your mom and your grandma raise you? Yep, yep, yep. Mm, same household? Uncle, yes. A one-bedroom house for me in mm. Hayden Webster in San Francisco, California. What was, uh, what was childhood like for you? Amazing. Best thing. I actually had to have an actual childhood, you know. My childhood was like I got to do everything. I got to play every sport, got to participate in every type of art. You know, I got to actually be a kid. You know, I had video games. It was just, it was dope. I think, um, you know, for me, it was living in um, somewhat of a dual reality. The dual reality of being a child, but also seeing the reality of the world and the fact that, you know, there are homeless people out there. There are people who... Uh, succumb to a drug which debilitates them mm. you know uh, I, I I had in my neighborhood I was probably one of the few kids that had a game system but when I walk outside you know everybody would be in front of my house because I lived on the corner you know uh, literally participating in certain activities and mm. I would walk out my house and almost every day it would be active you know what I mean so you know it was interesting because I got to see the reality of things but also I was uh, taken under the wing by my neighborhood, you know. They told me what and what not to do. They they looked out for me, you know. They showed me a different type of love, and I feel like that's one of the reasons I was here today because it does take a village. You know? Were you were you influenced to or enticed to uh, do the you know the bad shit that you that was going on around you? Uh, nah, opposite. I was I was influenced to do the greatest. Like one of the dopest things, my babysitter. You know, I had a couple of different type of babysitters, but. One of my babysitters, his name was Lester, and, you know, he was active in just being in the streets, and he would uh, go to jail. But as a kid, I wouldn't notice. So he would disappear for a minute and come back, and I'd be like, Lester, where you been at? He'd be like, oh, I went to college. He's mm -hmm. like, oh, I went to college. And then everybody who would go to jail in the neighborhood, I don't know if they told everybody this, but they was telling me they went to college. So I went to college <clears throat> um, in New Orleans at Loyola. That's my, that was my first stop at college. When I was out there, I was chilling in my dorm. I think I had just smoked. You know what I'm saying? You know, we all smoking weed in college, having fun. Mm -hmm. And I was chilling. I was by myself. And then it hit me. I was like, man, he ain't go to college. He went to jail. And it's literally simultaneously as that uh, Meek Mill song that came out, some niggas go to college, some niggas go to jail, some niggas go to heaven, some niggas go to hell. And I was kind of like listening to that song and at that time in my life. And it hit me. I'm like, damn, blood. They saw something different in me that they didn't want for themselves. They saw these opportunities I was getting and they just, you know, they told me to go this way. It was probably like one person that was like, man, um, man, these niggas can't be outside. They're not putting in work like this, you know, and it, mm -hmm. I, I was fortunate because I was actually from, then I, I lived in the neighborhood that I was from. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, sometimes people maybe, you know, their grandma might live there or they got a cousin. So they're able to come to the neighborhood but you know, I lived where I was from. Like it was, so you know, it's. I feel like it's different when you're born into it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was more so like I never wanted to leave, or but I always wanted to make the best of my situation. Mm -hmm. 
So I was just fortunate. And I had a lot of good mentors who was like, man, you don't want to do this. You know what I'm saying? You don't want to do that. They taught me things, but it's like, man, don't. This, there's no po- positive outcome. Now, our positive outcome is slim. Go do this. And, uh, you know, I just trusted them, and I'm still here today. What uh, high school did you go to? I went to Sacred Heart Cathedral Preparatory. It's funny because the one dude who was telling us, oh, we need to put in work, he had went to that school too, but unfortunately, he got his life on track now, and I love him. And I think he's a dope mentor, but, you know, unfortunately, he had to go to prison to figure out, you know, hey, that wasn't the way. And i just seen so many people, even going to a school like I went to, one of the most prestigious uh, schools in San Francisco, you mm-hmm. know, um, still, you know, running a, the elements of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Like, when I say it's a Rubik's Cube, it's really a perplexed city. It's really a, a, a paradox. You know, when you live in a city that, you know, is known for its tourism, it's known for the glamour, it's known for the acceptance, but, you know, they don't realize is San Francisco has the most projects on the West Coast. You know what I mean? You know, some of the uh, worst uh, drug cases and, and some of the worst elements, police brutality in the whole city. So, you know, it's just dealing with that, navigating in the same way. When you, <clears throat> you say you grew up with your, your mom and your grandma, and you say you just recently found your father. Yeah, 20, How did 20, that come about? Uh, you know, energetically, you know, I was open to it. I put it open to the universe. So I did something. I had an epiphany about August 2020, you know, during the pandemic, you know, I wanted change in my life, you know, and I was in a situation where it wasn't bad, but it wasn't uh, the best of me. So, you know, I just... At this time, I was uh, at a, I call it a height in my life. I was at a true peak. I was in, at the time, the best shape of my life. I was making the most money. Uh, I was locked in uh, with my career, music and acting. And then, you know, I was just having fun. And I, I was in uh, uh, Vegas and I just literally was like, I want to meet my dad. So the two weeks after I came back, my mom just showed me a picture of him, you know. And then when she showed me a picture of him, I was like, she never did this before. Like, she had pictures of him, you know. And then she was like, this is your dad, like. This is how he looked when he was your age. Like, you know, she was just telling me all this. And we had a moment and I feel like I put it into the universe. I had this imagery and, you know, it was circulating within my mind, within the universe. And then, like I say, around December, you know, I had I seen a message on Facebook or a confirmation that said he had he had uh, accepted my friend request. I've been trying to add him. How since, old were you when this happened? Uh, I was uh, 20. I mean, I'm timeless. So, But I just know it happened in 2020. Mm. You know I mean, so it's like when I was 18, I had been trying to talk to him. So it's been a minute. You know I mean, I'm I'm going to I'm 29 right now. So it's like uh, I'll say it was like 26. You know what I mean, so, okay. You know I mean, but you know, I'm still time. I mean, you know that black don't crack. <laughs> you know about that thing. But anyways, um, so then he added me on Facebook, and we just kept chopping it up. And then my auntie tapped in with me. She actually was unfortunately had diabetes and cancer. Me and her had a bond. She passed away. And then me and my dad had the same birthday. So, you know, um, I ended up shooting this dope uh, music video to one of my songs. Wait, 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 wait. So, you're just meeting him, right? Um, Yeah. And it seems like you found him pretty easy. It was was that simple, just your mom showing you a picture and then a nigga just finding you on Facebook like that? Literally. Mm -mm. Crazy, right? Did you, since since it was that easy, did you you feel any... uh, any um like no uh, hate or anger be like yo why didn't this happen a long time ago since think, this was this easy to do i think for me the reason why i was able to find him and it happened so easily is because energetically i was uh i had made amends on my own mm. you know i was just like man i'm ready to meet him and it's like as soon as that happened the universe made it happen so much so that i was 
I, a couple months later, from October to December, we was already talking. And then from December to May, I was already, uh, I had already seen him. So, you know, and then it happened to be the week after both of our birthdays. My birthday is, our birthday is May 3rd. You know what I mean? So it was like, <clears throat> it's interesting that, that it happened that way. And I think it happened that way because I was at peace with it. And, you know, I never really talked to him like, hey, this is what happened. I just paid attention to the stories he told. His The stories he told, the stories my grandpa told, uh, my grandma, my mom. And mm-hmm. I think it was best. This might sound weird. It would have been dope to have him in my life, but it was best not to because he's so cool that I would have tried to be like him. He's a barber. You feel me? Entrepreneur. I'm a third generation entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Probably longer than that. You know, I got to trace the history, history but uh, I'm happy that I didn't because I had to figure life out on my own. And it's like, that was the best thing I needed for me. It's like, it's like you being in a, a lion or a tiger or any type of animal and you, you get lost from your, your tribe or your, your pride. And then you have to go find your world. It's like Simba, you know what I mean? And Lion King, that's how it was. You know? So, so as a, as a black man, you feel, you feel that growing up without that male, uh, that father figure in, in the household. Without it, you turned out better without it? I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I feel <laughs> like, you know, I had a good home foundation. Mm-hmm. So I had good matriarch, first of all, first and foremost. But also what I did was I didn't have my biological father, but I had multiple father figures. So in my neighborhood, you know, it was kind of like how Native Americans, because my grandmother, she's a Narragansett Native American. And Native American culture, you know, and, and many other cultures, what happens is, you know, the 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 village raises the kids. So I was fortunate to live in a tight knit neighborhood where I had multiple father figures in every on every block, like on every everywhere I stepped, you know, and it's I would that was just my experience. Me mm. personally, I think you definitely need a mix of masculine and feminine energy in every house, household, especially the black household. Mm. And the crazy thing is people don't talk about it too much. The black household up until the nineteen fifties was the most uh tight family unit in America. But due to, I would say, welfare, that's the biggest thing. They had a man in the house rule, which prohibited women from receiving welfare uh, due to having a man in the house. Uh, Black men were taken out of the house. And, you know, being one of the recipient, biggest recipients of welfare, actually white people were the biggest recipients of welfare in terms of the number. But due to many black people to having to get on welfare because, you know, the black woman, women weren't able to work steady jobs and black men were only getting uh, work three to four months out of the, a year. That was the most viable way to make a uh, get an honest way of getting food due to all the uh, um, disproportionate laws against black people. So that was something that really broke up our family dynamic. You know, I mean, I got a documentary for people to watch with firsthand accounts of black women and psychologists talking about this, the ramifications that it would have on our kids after that. So, you know, I'm fortunate to be the opposite effect because what the psychologist was saying is that this lack of men in the household, this lack of family dynamic is going to propel these children to act out in a way that is going to be uh, um, basically criminalized. And that was is that was in the 70s. And you see that persist in the 80s due to the crack uh, epidemic, then the 90s due to mass incarceration and Super Predators, 2000 doing it due to the um, elevated gang culture. And then the 2010s, you kind of see that shift, you know, because that was more of a, a positive era. You know what I mean? So, you know. But yeah, so. Did your father show any uh, remorse when you first uh, 
started to talk to him? Uh, not really. About not being there? Yeah, but he, he didn't, but I, I didn't want that. Like, mm-hmm. for me, like, why do we spend all this time worrying about the past? We got the present and the future. He ended up um, buying the tickets to the Eagle game, Eagles mm-hmm. game we went to. We had a great seat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I just got out there and he took care of the rest. And, you know, he helps me in so many other lanes and elements. So you guys still talk to this day? Of course, man. That's my guy. We got the same birthday. That's literally my twin. Mm-hmm. I mean, he looked like me. He works out. He gave me advice. He was the person. When I saw him, I never had a six pack in my life until 2020. When I saw him, I saw him, how he looked. One of the first questions I asked when we started talking was, I was like, I, I, have you ever had a six pack? And he's like, what? Oh, my whole life. I always get it. What? And so I was in a, in a month. I never had a six pack in my whole life. In a month. By January, end of January, I had an app. Mm. So it was just like, you know, you know, I think you definitely need that that father figure in the home. Whether it be a stepdad, a grandfather, you know, a big brother, anything like that. You need that presence. But you know, not having it, if you have a community and you have strong women around you, you're gonna win still. What's your father's name? I mean Thomas Eady. Shout out to him. I probably know that nigga. He definitely do. He from um South Carolina though. He just mm. happened to be an Eagles fan though. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Thomas Eady, man. This All right, great. So you um <clears throat> after Shout out to our sponsor. <laughs> Armor, you know what I mean? <laughs> I actually do got a sponsor. Oh wait, oh, give me the plug. I got you. After that. What uh where did where did your life take you after high school? Oh man, I went to New Orleans, man. Mm. Shout out to the Big Easy. You feel me? I was smoking hella weed and I was to just, go to college, right? Yep, yep. yep. You, what were you studying? Uh, uh initially biology to be an OBGYN and then mm. I just didn't have enough discipline and I wanted to have fun. Then also I found psychology. I feel like that was more um my speed. I love I love the mind. Mm-hmm. I love understanding things. But then also, you know, our our community. That's what I, that's what I studied. Oh, the psychology. Mm. Come on, man. We got the same name, same game. Come on, man. But um, so you know, I feel like our community needs that. We do need a lot of doctors because you know, unfortunately, black women are you know the most uh, underserved and uh, have the most deaths with uh, pregnancy, mm. uh, most complications in pregnancy. So you know, I feel like we need that, and I definitely would like to encourage more black women to be OBGYNs just for the comfortability of it. I know I am a man. You know, women might not like you all up in there. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to do it because, ironically, uh, uh, watching the Cosby show, mm. you know, and maybe not necessarily because of Bill Cosby, but because of what his life looked like being an OBGYN. I was like, man, I can have that family, you know, being an only child and yeah. that dynamic. But found psychology, one of the best things I ever did. Ended up dropping out just doing to lack of discipline and you know, one no one I wanted. Wait, 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 let's yeah. stay. Let's stay on that. Um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so you get Orleans. to you get to New Orleans. Was that your first time uh, living outside there? of the Bay? For mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, it definitely was. And how'd you feel? Was it a culture shock to you? Oh man, culture shock. It was the best worst experience ever. Only bad because I was undisciplined. Mm-hmm. Only bad because I didn't have my stuff together. Mm-hmm. The best because of the opportunities, the people, meeting new people, and just knowing I could go out there and just I was absolutely on my own. No family. You know, I had. Uh, uh, a scholarship uh, foundation helped me, me, but I was really on my own and being able to navigate and, you know, make friends and, you know, become or still be who I was out here, out there, mm-hmm. you know, when nobody knowing me. So that was hella dope. <clears throat> so you, you said earlier, right, that you had multiple father-like figures that were yeah. trying to keep you out of trouble. Mm-hmm. You had a good household mm-hmm. with uh, right. two respectable women uh, who instilled values in you. Mm-hmm. You weren't fucking up in 
in California. So and then when you got to New Orleans, mm. you start to fuck up. Is no, that I was, be- I was, well? I mean, you said you you didn't have the discipline yeah. to to graduate, and I don't know. We can get into why you didn't graduate. And yeah. I ended up uh, finishing, but yeah. But um, the question is, do you feel like uh, because you didn't have those people in your ear? Mm-hmm. Or or those father figures to like that were physically there to be like yo what the fuck are you doing definitely like that's why you were uh, slipping man and and it's the crazy part because the first semester you know I actually was doing well I got a three like academically I was on point mm-hmm. but I feel like it was just more like a I was facing some depression you know I was a uh, you know I I have chron- I had chronic eczema and I just wasn't keeping my habits like you know with me I it's uh, with eczema it's, it's your diet it's your working out it's your sleep schedule it's your stress level and i just wasn't managing myself and that propelled me to create something called my equilibrium balance mm. which is your and my mom would pray for me on this every day it's my mental physical spiritual emotional psychological and i added the moral and financial and balancing these helped me balance my life and, you know keeping these intact you know helped me keep my stress down and, you know helped me with the six doctors of life which is rest uh water you know, which are hydration, um, exercise, diet, stress level, and then the bonus one, which is sunlight, you know, being outside, enjoying life. And, you know, when when I keep all those balancing and I'm handling my business, life is a breeze. You know, I'm just living, you know, but uh, I, I just wasn't on that. You know, I'm mm-hmm. out there drinking. I'm trying to mess with the women. I'm, I'm being something I'm not. I'm participating in activities that aren't legal, you know, and, and I'm building a reputation because out there, Nobody knows me, so it's not a, oh, that's bruh. You feel me? We don't got to get into that as, who is this random dude outside of the club? And then, you know, I'm, I'm fighting, you know what I mean? And then I built up a reputation as to being somebody who likes to fight, not because I initiated it, because I just stood my ground, you know? Mm. And, then, you know, so, but now going back out there is beautiful. I get embraced by the community outside of the Bay Area where my music is, that is the top streaming spot uh, out there. So they, them in Houston in the South, Houston... New Orleans, Houston, then Atlanta. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, my top stream is spot. We, we, we'll get back to that. But. Shout out to them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sponsor, my sponsor. This is a good time to bring up the sponsor. Um, oh, BetterHelp. Uh, if you guys want anyone to talk to about depression, uh, BetterHelp. You can get t- 15% off your first month of BetterHelp. This is an online, a online service with a psychologist. 15% off. Use the code BetterHelp slash Everyday Celebrity. And it's just like that. And we still winning. But now, we were. you said you had depression. Was the depression because of, uh, like, eczema? Was that? Uh, it was probably like that. It was mm. a combination of things, you know, mm. probably environment. You know, epigenetics, you know, how my genes reacted to the environment. You mm. know, just like temperament, you know, eczema being uh, homesick, you know, just a whole bunch of things. Mm. And I had, uh, for me, this had reoccurred because when I was around 12, it was like I had got that depression and I just didn't know what it was. And it was because of my skin. And I built these things up without knowing them. I had these discipline. I I ended up getting waves in my hair and then I ended up finding working out and eating hella healthy. And that supplemented my my skin until I went to high school and I was just on point. Mm. And then... You know, I went to college and I kind of got away from that because I got somewhat arrogant. I had a hubris. Mm. And I like the story of Icarus, the wax wings burnt when I flew too close to the sun and I hit the ground hard. You know, so I picked myself back up, though. How long were you in uh, New Orleans for? Uh, from 2012, August 2012 to 
December 2013. So you say you dropped out. What was the fi- what was the final uh decision? Does something happen where you're like, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm not uh, going back just, to school. You know, I just wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't trying. Like I would be sleeping all day. Mm. I was, or I'd be up all night sleeping all day, and I just gave up on myself. I was like, man, I, I can I was telling myself I can do it. I can do it. But I was like, man, I was in my own way. I mean, school isn't for anyone, everyone, yeah, and yeah. and you don't have to be. You don't have to go to school to be successful. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, but, so I mean, feeling bad about dropping out that don't mean shit. Yeah, and then also for me, it was like I felt like that was in the moment, you know, and I needed to do that because when I dropped out of school, I came back home and I figured out what I wanted to do. I was like, man, I really like acting. I really like music, and then it propelled me to put me in the right position to when I was recording some music to audition for my first feature film. Mm-hmm. And then I end up doing that, Last Black Man in San Francisco. Shout out to Joe and Jimmy. Wait, 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 we go, we, oh, yeah. we, we. <laughs> Take it back, huh? We go take it back. So you, yeah. you said you dropped out, but you said you finished. Yeah, yeah. You, so you, ended, you went back and finished, right? So I, I went up. Why did you go back and finish? I needed to. It was, I felt like I, I was the only person in my neighborhood that graduated from college. You know, I was the only person in my family that has graduated from college. I felt like I had all these opportunities in my life for me to just give up then. But why did you, why did you feel like you needed to? Was, because you don't, um, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people will go to school yeah. that they don't even want to go to school. Mm-hmm. And then they waste years and years of their life studying something, graduate, and they're not even interested in it. Mm-hmm. Now they're in debt. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people uh, go to school and even though they have another dream, Mm-hmm. but they're in school and are afraid to drop out because yeah. of parents uh, and shit like that. Um, you dropped out because you felt like it, what school wasn't for you, correct? No, I dropped out more for like personal reasons. Like for personal was, reasons? Yeah, I was dealing like more with a skin issue. Like So with my situation, like my eczema was so severe that I developed something that had called red man's disease. Mm-hmm. So basically, my whole, it looks like pretty brown chocolate right now. So shout out to all the ladies out there that like nice chocolate man. That's nice. But you feel me? Um, at the time, my whole skin was red. Like mm. I, it looked like it was red and bumpy and uncomfortable. Anything that you touch, anything that touched my skin, like it would irritate it, you know. And I would be like so point to the point I could barely move. And mm. then that it was so like debilitating that I I developed like anxiety in public spaces. And when I dropped out, you know. I, it was for a medical excuse. So I could have went back to school. My credits got froze. I didn't have any classes. I failed. They got paused. So I, when I did transfer, I was cool. But I went back and I got my life together. Like I went to go see a dermatologist. They helped me with some medicine. Then I did a rare form of um, skin treatment called UV light treatment, where they take a concentrated light and put it on your skin and it healed my skin. That's why like sunlight is amazing. One of the mm-hmm. best things you can do. They even advised me to move uh, to San Diego because that's one of the best places for sunlight. So, for, in that period, like it was, took about like six months, but you know, I figured it out. And then in that summer, I just started hustling hard. I was selling hot chocolate at the Giant Stadium. I had got a, a job at a public relations spot, an internship. I was hustling in any way I could make some money. And then um, I was like, I was applied to Morehouse and I got in. But I didn't want to leave again. You know, it wasn't wasn't enough money for me. I didn't want to take out those crazy loans. So I went to, I believe, Santa Rosa Junior College. This this might have been actually um, before I went to St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. I finished at St. Mary's. But so all that stuff I just said was before I went to St. Mary's. 
when I was figuring my life out, got my skin on point, I went to Santa Rosa Junior College and I went there to get away from the elements of San Francisco. Santa Rosa is like North Bay, out the way where you could focus. I actually just did a show out there. It was dope. But I went out there, played football for a moment, and I got my AA. And out there, I just figured my life out. I had a lot of time to myself mm-hmm. to figure out what I wanted to do. So, you know, I went out there and got the first 4.0 I ever got in college and just got locked in, you know, got disciplined. Then I took, you know, I think I took like, um, I took the, I ended up finishing in December, I believe, of 2015 or something like that, around that. And then uh, 2016, I took the spring off. And then summertime, I got an email from St. Mary's in Moraga. And I was like, man, let me go. And I went and then I had a great summer, bought my first car. And I was like, man, I'm a make this commitment. And then I committed, you know, found my life again. And, you know, when I look at that time period from 2013 to 2019, those six years where I started and where I finished was crazy because where I started, I was debilitated, you know, no money, not, not money is not everything, but just, I felt broke in terms of like my confidence and everything. And then 2019, the same week I graduated from college, the movie I was in, Last Black Man in San Francisco, end up coming out. So it was like really for me a moment of triumph. And I was like, man, nothing when I when I did that, it might have took a minute, but I felt like at that point nothing can stop me. I just gotta keep going. When you came back and when you got your when you finished college, mm-hmm. was your intention still on becoming an OBG one? No, nah, I was uh, I focused on neurological psychology. And mm-hmm. um I'm gonna go back to the question you said about going back to college. So when I dropped out, it was for a selfish reason. It was because, you know, I needed to get myself right. But when I was propelled to go back to college, it was for a selfless reason for my mom, for my family, for my community. Nobody really seen anybody who had a college degree or people who have college degrees don't be around as much or they work in an industry that, you know, we don't really view as something we connect with. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, I went back for that reason. And then I was personally motivated from watching a documentary called Hidden Colors in which, you know, they talked about how after World War II, this was the first time that they um, did, a, a, I think it's called an autopsy or a biopsy on um, soldiers' brains. And this was the first time they had a mass amount of black people's bodies that they could do autopsies on. So when they did this, they found that in upwards of 70 to 80% of black people that their pineal gland was active while in less than 80% of white people, their pineal gland was inactive. And you know, pineal gland is the scientific name or the uh, biological, excuse me, uh, physiological name for your third eye. So I was just very perplexed by this. And, you know, this propelled me to want to go in to study neuro- neuropsychology because I wanted to know what is all these different things in the brain, these triggers, how does it uh, interact with uh, how we think, we feel, and we act? Like, what is what is all these different things? So I went back and, you know, had a focus on social psych as well when I was there. That's like humanism or positive psychology, the psychology of having good a good mood, you know, and stuff like that. And then intertwine those and I end up finishing with a, a bachelor's in science from St. Mary's with a, a focus on neurological psychology and social psychology. But, you know, it's all psych at the end of the why day. Why didn't you pursue, um, why didn't you pursue that? Uh, I do I'm talking about like as, as far as like job career was. I, I feel like I do it a lot of ways because I'm, I make music and I act. So, you know, a lot of the way you get your opportunities in these places, a lot of people are good, but it's who are you as a person and how do you make people feel? So, you know, I use a lot of the um, techniques that I learned 
in there. And then I uh, the same way with that, um, I put it into other people. You know, I, I don't think, so I, I don't even want to downplay myself and say I don't use it on a professional level because if I didn't use it, I wouldn't be here. A lot of the, I got my movie roles not because, well, I, I, I put the work in, but also it was because, you know, I connected with the people. You know, mm-hmm. I connected with the directors, the producers, and every way I could, you know. So I feel like, um, and then understanding, you know, how to tap into a role, the psychology of the role. Damn, this person is a billionaire who has never felt a day of um, struggle in his life. Mm-hmm. How do you connect to that? You know, this person is a... a, a a police officer, you know, I was protesting police brutality. We shut down the Bay Bridge in 2020. How do I connect with somebody I was just protesting? You know, just figuring these ways and psychologically tapping into it. And then, you know, putting that into the community, helping these kids who may be going through depression, who may have anxiety, helping people. The biggest thing I see um, is morbid dependency. And morbid dependency is when a person who is completely able and independent, uh, gravitates to people who are manipulators and, and dependents and feel like they can fix them. You know, you know, you always see some, a beautiful woman, you are a woman that may not have the most self-esteem, you know, they meet a dude who lives this type of lifestyle and they say, oh, you know, I can fix him. He like all these women, I'm gonna make sure he stays monogamous or, oh, yeah. you know, you know, and then it's like talking to these people and, you know, dismantling this uh, uh, trick that they're playing on themselves and saying like, you know, you really um, want to fix him because he reminds you of your dad, you know, and this traumatic response causes you to try to, you know, fill this void in yourself uh, because that's the void I had. Uh, and she will never be able to fix him. He has to fix himself. Exactly. Just like man. an alcoholic. You can do whatever you want, but yeah. if this nigga don't want to stop drinking. Nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. But yeah, so you know, like I've, I end up, so I, I don't think I use it in a, a way to where it's like uh, traditionally professional or traditionally like, oh, I went and applied for a job, but I, I just took that and applied in a life and now it still lives in my profession in mm-hmm. every way. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's how I view it. So when did, uh, when did the music come? Were you just always making music as a young kid and shit and then- yeah. When did uh when did you realize that you could start doing this shit uh mm. as a career? Uh, so I made my I was always doing public speaking. I was always into dancing. I did African dancing, capoeira when I was young. Mm. I made my first beat at the Boys and Girls Club when I was six. Nothing I jumped into, but just always kind of inclined. Thankfully, and then I was more so getting into poetry from when I learned how to write all the way to about twelve. And then you know my homies, you know we recorded our first song off a of Nokia or. A, like OG Getro and Hunter's Point, you know what I mean? And then my, my partner in Filmo, shout out to Jesse B, he bought um, a desktop, a Mac desktop, and learned how to make beats. And he was recording us. And the homie said, man, jump on this song, bro. You you got gas. And I was like, all right. And then from there, I was hooked. I started, when they put that grinding beat on the table, I was always the first one to rap. When mm-hmm. he's outside just chilling, I'm rapping. When I got, I did it so much that people, we'll go to parties and people would try to battle me. And I and I flamed them up off the top of the head. So I was just like, you know, I was having fun with it. And the homies around me, shout out to my, uh, I got a brand called Still Winning, but our first, um, before it was Still Winning, it was Budget, and we rebranded it to Still Winning. So, you know, um, they was always like, man, we got to make this music. So we made a project, and I wasn't taking it serious, but people love what I did on there. So much so that one of the songs that I made, 
And one of my lyric songs or one of my lines went viral on Vine before it was like a thing to go viral. And then like uh, 2016 or 20, yeah, I'll say 2016, before I went to college in St. Mary's, I was still selling hot chocolate at uh, Gurdelli, uh for Good Early at AT&T Park, now Oracle Park, where the Giants play. And August 2016, I spit a freestyle um, to the Soul Gone Beat by Monica, put it on Instagram, and it went up. And I was like, man, I could do this. Mm-hmm. Like, So I just started locking in and throwing some of my talent. I wouldn't release my own song until 2018, but I just spent that two years building up my confidence, you know, getting in the booth, getting my booth comfortability, studying the craft, figuring out what I wanted to do, and then... You know, I was like, man, it's time to jump in. So, you know, I, I've been around it my whole life. 2016, decided I should do this. In 2018, I made the push and been pushing ever since. What was the name of your first project that was released? To the Top. You know, the, the, the one before, I my first solo one was To the Top. Because I feel like that's from the, when I first started, the amount of work I put in, I had to convince myself that no matter what, I'm going to be the best at what I do. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that's my personal best. You know what I mean? And then to show it to the world. So that was to the top. Explain to the people who've never heard that first project. Uh, mm-hmm. What was the vibe on that? Um, conscious mob music. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like in other places like East Coast, y'all got drill, you know. And um, the South, I believe it's like, I wouldn't call it crunk, but it's more like energetic music, you know. So like our version of drill music in the Bay is it's called uh, mob music. So mob music is a, a BPM that's around... 90 to 100, mm-hmm. and it makes you go like this. It, it makes you bounce. Mm-hmm. You feel me? But the way you bounce is, it's kind of like a, it's not hyphy. Hyphy is more like a fun. It's more like a lit. You know what I mean? It's more like a careless. Mob music is intentional. Mob music is, oh, I'm outside. What we on? Mob music is slightly more aggressive. It's slightly more, it can be fun, but it's slightly more insidious. So I say conscious because my music had a message on, in it. Um, one of the first songs on there is called Heavyweight. And the first line on the first verse is, let me tell you what it is. The government shady. They be stealing kids in reference to ICE. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I was like, you don't want to hear that shit. You want to hear me brag how I hit your chick. And I'm like, guess what? I did. Legs by her head. Then I put it in her ribs. So it was like, uh, and that project is more like a, the first three songs is like a Trojan horse. Uh, putting the trigger wor- uh, words that people want to hear on the beats that people the frequency that people like, but putting these messages in there. Then the next three songs was for the ladies. Um, I had a song called Touch Me, the one I was talking about earlier, the flip with Case. Then I had a song called Shake. We sampled Tokyo Boys off of, or yeah, the Tokyo Boys off the Tokyo Drift song. That ding, 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 hey, that uh, Fast and Furious. I mean, then after that, I, I, I had a song on there when I was just playing around singing. And then the last three songs was more like conscious, boom, bat type rap. You know what I mean? So is it safe to say that you make music that's probably kind of like similar to like Public Enemy type shit? Um, oh, damn, thank you. I, I, pre- I take that as a big compliment because, you know, uh, it was one of the biggest rap groups, but to a degree, um, not, I don't feel Do like- Do you understand what I'm saying though? Yeah, that comparison? Sure. Mm. I wouldn't say to that degree because I feel like theirs was, ours is, I mean, theirs was completely, man, we hate this side and we're outright- Conscious, fuck them. Mine's is more like, look, I know the police and shit is doing terrible stuff. I know we live in uh, a systematic situation that holds us back. I know there is a whole bunch of bullshit that's happening 
But I also see that we need to respect women and have a good time. Mm. And then I'm also in a club having fun. So I'm putting all these together. Like even one of my biggest songs now is called Big Stepping. But on there, I'm, I'm talking about police brutality. I'm talking about, you know, being yourself. I'm talking about, you know, the, the duality of me growing up in the hood, but not being a thug or not being a pimp. And but still having to live my life and exercise my Second Amendment right or being able to defend myself, you know, things like that. So I feel like it's a unique marriage of of what is this conscious music like Public Enemy, but what's also my conscious reality of like what YG is doing. Like, you know, I like to be in like literally my life for a period is Saturday night. I'm at a hotel. I'm at an event. We might be at the strip club. We might be at a private place where we having fun with some beautiful women, enjoying life, all consensual, of course, just having a good time. Then the next day, we might be protesting the police. Then or the next day, Saturday night, we out having a good time. Sunday, we at uh, the football game for the kids, you mm-hmm. know, showing them love. Or the next week, you know, we've given back to the community. So it's, it's such a duality, you know. It's more like... um. Mixing the Black Panthers with Uncle Luke, you know what I mean? Whatever that, whatever that would look like, I feel yeah. like I embody that. Yeah, I don't. Um, I wasn't really hip on your music, mm-hmm. but I knew you uh, outside of music. That's how I I, I met you. Mm-hmm. And every time you would greet me, it's on some like oh, King was positive vibes and shit like that. So, are the question I'm asking is, are you? A religious person or more spiritual? Mm, I think I'm spiritual in terms of my beliefs, but religious in terms of my uh, like my systems or my my discipline. And uh, mm. the way that is, is like you know, in terms of my beliefs, um, I'm spiritual because I the way I look at religions are every religion is kind of for the most part saying a similar thing, but in a different way, you know, whether that be monotheistic or polytheistic, most monotheistic religions are telling you the same thing, but with just a different outcome or or a different kind of like, you know, a different type, excuse me, a different type of addition. So like, you know, Judaism might be five plus five. Uh, Christianity might be six plus four. Uh, uh, Islam might be three plus seven, but all of them equal 10 at the end of the day. And it's just a different belief system to have different practices. I mean, I like to look at those and say, okay, I want to use those practices to help me still love the higher power or believe in a higher power, or exchange energy with the higher power in my best way. So in that way, I'm spiritual. But in terms of like praying, I, I pray as much as I can. So I will feel like that's closer to Islam. And uh, when I talk to God, it's more from a view of Christianity. But the way I look at it is I look at like how the Bible says, you know, we are God, we are made in the image of God. So I see somebody who looks like me and you when we pray. I, I really believe that God is a woman, you know, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's interesting how to, you know, talking to that because a woman creates us, you know, mm. and, you know, and like you, the un, and I even look at it the way the universe is the masculine energy or, and God is the feminine energy or vice versa. And I think it's a way that it intertwines to a way that's comp- too complex for us to comprehend, especially in the Anglo-Saxon view of life, to where they trade in being the masculine and feminine energy. So, like, the universe can be the feminine energy at one point, while God is the masculine, and vice versa, you know? So, very interesting, but 
Yeah, so, you know, as terms of discipline, though, religious for sure. But in terms of, you know, just my beliefs and fluidity of, you know, understanding culture, I would say it's spiritually, you know, connecting to people on a spiritual level. Mm. Yeah. Your, um, your first project, right? Yeah. When you dropped that, was uh, big, that big stepping song, was that on your first project? Uh, it wasn't, but the, why that first project was important is because it set up the infrastructure and the foundation to make a big step in. So, mm. you know, Jay Stalin, he's an artist from West Oakland, one of my favorite artists. Every time he sees me, he says this funny thing. He says, uh, heavyweight is my main thing that I love and big stepping is my side bitch. And when he says that, he's like, bro, the first song that I ever heard from you and I was addicted to and hooked was Heavyweight, and that's the first song on To The Top. So what me and the producer Quake Beats is, he came to me, he said, I want to make a timeless project. And what we did was we took a, we took a, the past sound of funk and mob music in the Bay and put it in a, and translated it in, in a contemporary way. And the way we did that was did research, but we, look, we looked at uh, songs that we did together, Heavyweight, Talk About It, um, Tricks, um, Big Stepping, I mean, excuse me, um, Gut Check, and we put these songs, he took my vocal chain, how I was recording, how he mixed it and mastered it. And he took that and he made beats off of those vocal chains to the BPM that would hit the most. So like um, Big Steppin' was on my third project, me and his project, uh, I Gotta Feel It, you know. And I say that uh, purposely and intentionally. I, every time I work with him, I say I gotta feel it because it's a vibration, it's a frequency. If you, if you like a certain song, you can feel the vibration. You can feel the frequency. If you do some research, it's when you put certain um, like grains on a speaker or anything like that, they start making different different shapes. So, you know, like, and I say to him, like, man, I can only record on something if I feel it. And I got to feel it. So, you know, we took the vocal chains and the production from those earlier projects and figured out, all right, what are we, what are we doing right? And then translate to making a song. A whole project, Big Stepping was the uh one that connected with everybody but a whole project that sits in that same frequency of big stepping mm -hmm. something timeless you know when you uh made your first project yeah tell me something that you didn't realize was so hard that you thought it would be easy a uh, song frequent i mean song sequencing mm -hmm. so you know like not understanding like okay when you just drop a song like that's just you putting something out there that's doing it by itself when you sequence a project, you have, you want to tell a story, you know. Some people just throw music on there. Nothing wrong with that, you know, mm -hmm. mixtape vibes. But sometimes you want to paint a picture, you know. And then when I was doing my project, I wanted to paint a picture. It's called To The Top. So periodically I had interview interludes every three. Uh, before the, I saw I had an interlude, three songs, another interlude, three songs, and then finishing with three songs and then an outro. And I did that intentionally to break it up, to let people know it was a curve. So the first interlude is my homie from New Orleans calling me, and that was to let people know, like, okay, this is the type of time I'm on. This is the energy I had from coming from New Orleans. Then I had a young lady call me saying, man, I want something uh, sexy. I want something I can shake my ass to. And then the next three songs is for women. Then I had one of my big homies, one of my mentors call me like, man, hey, man, we need something positive. We need something for the community. We need something that's dope, man. Talk man, I want to see your real rap ability. And that was the la the final three songs, you know? That's smart. That's man, smart. thank you, man. I got to listen to that. Yeah, you got to. And then the <laughs> outro was comedic. 
uh, the outro, I, I do a, st- a character called Nigel Standards. Ah, oh, yes. Hello, hello, hello. Nigel Standards here. And I'm chilling with Jordan Awandi. And you know why they call him Awandi? Because he shakes his wand and all the women's clothes come off. That's magical in that way. <laughs> but, you know, and then I, I did a whole outro just thanking people. So it was a, you know, a true blend of my whole um, aura, my, a true blend of my personality and mm-hmm. what I do, you know. So it was fun making it. And it was, you know, go ahead. Is that how you, is that how you uh, approach every project? Mm. You think of, okay, what vibe or what story do I want to tell? And then you create the, or the project? Um, Not conventionally. So when I worked with, when I worked with Quake Beats, we just said we wanted to make it timeless. When I make my still running, winning projects, um, it's just a kind of a blend of music that I like to make. And I just put it together and how it sounds. That first project was me telling a story. I got to feel it was telling a story. Then um, then everything else is more like a vibe. Mm -hmm. Like I got a project with Drew Banger from the town and it's called It's Big. So the whole sound, when we say it's big, the whole sound of it is big. Like from the beats, from to how I'm rapping, it's a a more of a a bravado, you know. And then I got a a still winning volume too where it's more so just me being triumphant and confident, you know. Not really being as vulnerable, but more so keeping it lit. Excuse me. How many uh, projects do you have? <coughs> right now, I believe I got seven. Mm. So I got to the top. That was my first one. Still winning. My second one. I got to fill it. My third one. It's big. My fourth one. Then I believe I dropped a project called um, Four More. It was an EP for the Warriors. So it's all basketball music. Mm. Then Around the World. That was my sixth one with Clayton Williams. That was just a versatile project, the project where I had the most uh, features I've ever done on a project. And then my seventh one was the last one I dropped, uh, Still Winning Volume 2. So it was a compliment of the first Still Winning, which is just a, a vibe of inspiration and keep you lit. It's, it's just fun. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Out of those seven projects, which one is the most important to you and why? Uh, probably the first one to the top. It let me know. Because people were asking me to make a project at that point. You know, they was like, man, we want a body of work from you. And I think at this point, it's probably in in total my most highest stream project. And I think it was because that dedication I put in there, which what I, which I'm now getting back more into in terms of formatting, like telling a story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, that was the most important because it let me know I could do it. Is there any project where you're like, uh, I'm not really feeling this, but it's out? Um... Nah, all this should be fire. Like, and then if if I ever have like imposter syndrome, like literally the next day, like a couple weeks ago, I was like, um, I wasn't doubting myself or anything like that, but I was just like, oh, I got to be better. And then I literally, this young lady tweeted like, oh my God, this, this, um, still winning project is aging so beautifully. And that's one of my goals. I want to make timeless music. Mm. So for somebody to hear a project from 2019 and in 2023, be like, it still hits, you know, and that's my whole intention. You know, I do think some projects are better than others, but it's also subjective because mm-hmm. like my project, I just dropped around the world with Clayton William. Everybody loves that project a lot because it's so versatile. We got Afro beats. We got hood music. We got empowering music. We got conscious music on there. It was just like, I feel like I just pushed the bar of what I was doing. So, you know, and I, I don't really put out things. I don't really make anything anymore to where like, I'm like, ah, that was trash. You know, I feel like 
music is subjective, but I'm also in a part of my life where, you know, I'm a I'm gonna make something and I'ma love it at mm. the end of the day. So I don't really look at something. I'm I'm like I'm every time I make a song, I'm listening to it for a week. Like I'm like, oh, this is lit. Mm. I mean, so you know. Why do you think? Because um, I mean, I interviewed a bunch of like artists from the Bay Area. Why do you think um, Bay Area rappers are so stagnant in their career? Like they, like when you hear, let's say, mm. you, let's uh, well, Fab for example, right? Yeah, Fab is known like on the East Coast and in the South, mm-hmm. but he's more known on the East Coast and the South mm-hmm. by a businessman. Mm-hmm. His like his business dealings and shit like that. He's yeah. not really known for music. Mm-hmm. I mean, they might know one song of his, but his shit is not getting played on yeah. uh, on uh, fucking the um, Breakfast Club and yeah, shit like exactly. that. You know what I'm saying? E forty. I mean, E forty is no E forty is like a, a diamond in the rough because he has a mm-hmm. he's different. You know, Mount what Westmore. Him yeah, and too him short. and too short. But yeah. I mean, those are like the only two. Mm-hmm. people like you can actually name that that's music is being played and then like mm-hmm. east coast people want to work with him and shit yeah. like that but a lot of bay area hip-hop artists right mm-hmm. their music is popular in the bay yeah but if you go outside of the bay they're not getting any plays or mm-hmm. bookings and shit like that right mm-hmm. so why do you think that is uh, i think um it's a lot of it is optics so you know a lot of times it may look like something but it, it reality is something else. Mm-hmm. And then a part of those optics is, you know, you're going to see mainstream artists more than you're going to see uh, like uh, independent artists. So, and that's very important because uh, arguably the Bay Area is not only the place that, you know, outside of New York making hip hop, the place that where true independence was birthed. And then on top of that, not only birth, but you got true uh, independent connoisseurs in the music game. And for a while, the Bay Area, I talked to uh, Ghazi, the owner of Empire. He said, uh, right now what the Bay Area doesn't have that what it used to have is it used to dominate the middle tier. So right now, like um, the middle tier is like that. So you got, and this is not in terms of talent, like uh, low tier is you're regionally dope. Mm. Middle tier is nationally you lit and then uh top tier or the highest tier is internationally you're a top artist you can do what you just said you can tour you can go everywhere mm-hmm. so early in the early 2000s in the 90s even going back to the 80s two shirts air and everything e40 like the bay used to dominate the middle tier and we know this because um let's look at a, a timeline one of the dopest artists of our generation is lil wayne right mm-hmm so you, but people, many people don't recognize, but or say this, but without Master P, there would be no Lil Wayne. Why? Because Master P brought a, a mentality to New Orleans that uh, Cash Money saw and propelled them a, a type of a type of uh, release schedule, a releasing of music that Lil Wayne did that propelled him to be one arguably the greatest artist. It was releasing a high volume of music in a short time. All these mixtapes, freestyles, features. He did over 100 features in a, in a year, I believe. Something yeah, crazy man, like that. I think that. it was more than that. Man, mm-hmm. exactly. So, But, you know, that came from Master P getting a deal with Priority Records. And in one calendar year, I believe he had 10 albums that were gold or platinum. And that's 
ridiculous. Ten albums within No Limit that hit that. And you look at that and you say, damn, where does that come from? And many people don't know that Master P used to own a record store in Richmond and was in these same circles as E-40, Too Short, and more importantly, of somebody known as JT the Bigger Figure. They were offered the same goal from Priority Records. You know, Master P, you know, JT is still hella dope. He he building homes in Africa and doing all yeah, of this. Yeah, people don't realize how big JT the Bigger Figure is. But that's, it's, it's to what you're saying, though. What you're saying is completely true, but it's just like, you know, people took this Bay Area game and went out of the Bay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think for the Bay, uh, our independence is our best thing, but it's like also the thing that someone holds us back, you know, because at a point, you know, you get to a place, E-40 and Too Short are successful and because not only their hustle, independent work ethic, but but they also did partnerships with big labels. Bay Area artists outside of G-Eazy, outside of, um, I'm trying to think of, just some artists that it's hard for me to think of artists that I know from the Bay. Kamaya, she, you know, you know, these artists who do partnerships with larger labels because it's like, man, independent. We want to own our stuff, and then, but the thing is, when you don't do that, it's not like you can't do that independently, but you don't make the relationships that you may get. You you sign to a label not for the money. You sign to the label for the relationships. Yep. Some people you do them. You can do the money, but you can get that money from a bank. Mm-hmm. You can take out your own loans. You want that. You want to sign the Interscope because you want that feature that's on Interscope. Or you want to sign the RCA because you want that Chris Brown feature. You want to sign because you don't want to. You want a machine behind you. Exactly. You need a nigga to do marketing for you because you can't do it yourself. Exactly. You need a nigga to promote your shit because you can't do it yourself. Mm-hmm. You need a nigga to pay for the video because you can't do it yourself. That's why you sign. Mm-hmm. And niggas who are independent are usually niggas with a shit ton of money in the back like on some on back end shit like oh, I sell dope. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I'm taking this dope money and I'm going to fund this uh, career. Exactly. And it's not even a can't. It's just some more so you may get to a point in your life where if you're at the top of making music, it takes a lot of work to get there. And if you're doing five different things, you have to get to a point where you have a knowledge in these things, but you specialize in something. Mm-hmm. That's how all the greats get there. It's just like, it's just, I don't mean to interrupt yeah, you, good. but it's just like uh, my podcast, for example. It's strictly independent and it's known. Yeah. But if I get signed to like Spotify, yeah. when, that's, you well, when I get signed, that's yeah. just going to, Elevate what you It's going to elevate on a on a crazy scale because mm-hmm. Spotify has the power yeah. and the cachet, the 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 relationships to take you to that to take me to the next level and to put me in front of eyes that I cannot mm-hmm. do myself. Or it would take you probably like five extra years to do that. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's just like for the Bay, it's an interesting you know quandary, and I say that because you know we want to preserve our bubble, and the reason why we preserve our bubble is a two way street. You know, we don't want to let certain things get in to what we're doing. But unfortunately, that prohibits things from getting out. And do you do you also? I mean, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. But I think a big uh, reason for that for artists not making it uh, like nationwide is because, and tell me if you agree, it, because they they want to cater. They they spend too much time trying to cater. Mm-hmm. to the Bay Area sound. Like, for example, you mm-hmm. uh, you t- 
talked about Lil Wayne. Yeah. When Lil Wayne first came out, right? Yeah. You could the music all the uh, in the South had a had a had a certain, certain sound. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Then Lil Wayne comes out ever since he when he first came out, when he was rapping, he didn't sound like a uh uh he sounded more like East Coast. Yeah. Cause he was, uh, kid, he was, uh, yeah, he was influenced he was Gilly, by, yeah, Gilly the kid. fucking, um, well, this is before Gilly the Kid. I'm cool. talking about when that nigga was like the Hot Boys. Oh, Remember yeah, that yeah, Hot yeah. Boys album? Yeah, go on when Lil Wayne spits his verse, he doesn't sound like the rest Anybody of the niggas. Else. He stood, he stood out. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just work. He been rapping since before he was mm-hmm. ten or something. Jay like that. Cole, that nigga's yeah. from North Carolina, but he got, but that. he sounds like he's from New York. Mm-hmm. Kendrick Lamar don't sound like a typical L.A. rapper. Mm-hmm. The Game doesn't sound like a typical L.A. rapper. G Easy yeah. doesn't sound like a typical Bay Area rapper. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of uh, Bay Area rappers they try to just stick to that certain like high fee yeah. sound, so they don't reach the masses because mm-hmm. the masses don't nobody get high fee unless you're from Oakland. Niggas ain't mm-hmm. in Texas are not gonna understand why are y'all niggas dancing like that. That shit looks stupid. But I think it's very interesting because you know it's all about perspective. Because you know a lot of times people say the Bay Area sound doesn't. Do you agree with what I said though? Uh, I think I look at it from both perspectives. Right, like ahead. I see what you're saying. I do think Bay Area artists need to make global songs. Mm. Like that's why I have a song called Around the World, where it's an Afrobeat song and I'm having fun. You'll never know I'm from the Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the people that works on my team, he works for Hip Hop DX, and he played them a song I got called Dance. And he's like, man, he's like, this person's from the Bay? It doesn't sound like it. But also, we know the Bay Area songs our tra- sound translates, and here's why. Um, I go on and on. Can't understand how I last so long. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something, uh, uh, Rapping Forte uh, lyric, or yeah, Rapping Forte lyrics that Drake recreated, you know what I mean, or Drake, you know, paraphrased. And it's oftentimes, you not only see the business model, but you see the lyrics and oftentimes the flipping of certain beats. So I think it's more about, you know, taking that next step for the Bay Area to get out of the Bay. And we're in a bubble. And it's just like, I think it's a point of what you were saying, where we need to make more music that relates and translates to the world, but also figure out how to make this song translate because my biggest song, it's a Bay Area song, but you hear it in Michigan, you hear it in these different places. I was in the Bahamas and my lady, we was just chilling and my lady told the people, she was like, um, oh yeah, he made this song. And then the dude who was running the whole show, we went to this dope show at a bar. He was like, wait, you made this song? Bruh, this is one of my favorite songs and I'm in the Bahamas, you know? So I'm like, the sound translate, it's about, you know, putting legs behind it, but also it's about really making timeless music. And to a degree, I do agree with what you're saying. We do need to make a sound that progresses. So that's why we got artists like Lil Yee, Lil Pete, Lil Bean. You could name all these artists all day where you don't think they sound sound like they're from the Bay. But also, it's about pushing our sound because... When you look at Detroit, Detroit runs that middle tier I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. But their their sound ten years ago, everybody was, I know people that was from Michigan. I was like, I'm not listening to these motherfuckers that they rapping off beat and a whole bunch of other stuff. But they stuck to their sound, and now they sound is the biggest song to me. The biggest you know song coming out of the streets uh, last year was if we locked in, you know, switching up, you know, two million up by Peasy. And it, uh, you looked at a song, up. Mm. but then also like T Grizzly, first day out, 
You know, similar yeah. to how Meek Mill did his thing. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's about, for the Bay, it's about, you know, championing our culture. And when you champion your own culture and you celebrate your own culture, you don't have situations where LA artists flip Bay Area music all the time and everybody says, oh my God, that's the best shit I ever heard. But it's because Bay Area artists are listening to songs from the Bay and our Bay Area people are listening to stuff from the Bay. And unless you already somewhat established saying, ah, oh, you know, I'm not really tripping off that or, ah, oh, that's, that's this or that's that. People love hyphy music. Reflip it. That's what people literally are doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's about, it's about championing the culture at the end of the day. And I agree. It needs to get translated to another way, another life, another height. But I think, you know, the way you make timeless music is you take what is done well in the past and you make it in a contemporary form to embody the future. And it all correlates to make something timeless. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, like, even that song I just brought up, uh, Two Million Up, it's a sample. You know, a lot of songs that we like either have a, a, a song from the past that it's sampled from or it's inspired by, you know, so... Mm-hmm. I know a lot of my music off the project to the top was inspired by RBL Posse, you know, San Francisco's first rap group to get a major uh, deal or to get proposed on. So, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting place. It's like a mix of what you're saying, but also a mix of saying, look, we got to champion our sound. And I feel like we don't do that in the Bay anymore. Yeah. So, you know. Name me, name me one person that you looked up to. Um, and it was kind of like a muse to you, uh, music-wise. Oh, uh, you said muse. That changed the whole thing. Um, I have to say a woman. Um, the easiest, I would say Destiny's Child in the scope. But, you know, I really like Lauren Hill a lot. In terms of, like, far mentors, I would say Ice Cube, just because he was an actor-rapper. Mm. He was a writer. Like, he had bars. Like in everything. And Friday, like fact that him and DJ Pooh wrote that script, you know, the the mind to create that is crazy to me. But Muse I look at as women. Like like when women like they I feel like they're the more so inspiration as to why I do music, you know. And I think that comes from being in a a, a matriarch household or having an upbringing, being around a lot of women. And I feel like my first Women I saw, I was like, wow, they are amazing. It was Destiny Child for sure. Mm. So, you know, that was like the inspiration. And then from there, you know, that was like the muse of it. You know what I mean? Name me someone that you admired and looked up to uh, in your personal life. Definitely Dr. King. Mm. Dr. King for sure. Marcus Garvey, you know, Pan-Africanism. David Banner on his rebrand. And, you know, seeing him go from, you know, a dope producer who was talking about specific things to, you know, being a producer at Disney, which was crazy, you know, and, and having the level of consciousness he has and, you know, sticking up for our community. It's a long list, but, you know, those are the, some of the people um, that's just like off the top of my head, pretty, hella dope. Mm. I mean, so. If you were, uh, if you were growing up in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. You would have followed King's uh, vision or... Over Malcolm X's? Um, interesting. Very great question. Uh, I think at that time I would have because, you know, I think what Dr. King was saying was pretty dope, but also 
Dr. King had more of a inclusive mindset. But even after that, the thing that he really wanted to expand on was economical uh, advancement for black people and for everybody. And I think for me, that was the thing that made, as I grew up, I didn't know why I gravitated toward Dr. King. Initially, it was because he, he went to college at a young age and graduated. Initially, it was because of how well he spoke publicly. It w- initially, it was because Dr. King was a player, you know? You know, you know, you know Dr. King, uh, when he, his, 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 ideolo- his ideology was not uh, peaceful, right? When he first started, he, he was on that Malcolm that. X vibe. For real? I didn't know that. But um, he, he was told that if you walk out there and you're preaching what Malcolm X is preaching, you're not going to, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to get your point across. Mm. So you need to change your way of thinking. And and then, um, that's when the whole, uh, when the whole, uh, you know, peaceful marches and like, uh, we're not going to be nonviolent. That's when he changed his, uh, his stance. But when he first started, him and uh, Malcolm X was talking the same shit. Like, you hit me, nigga, I'm going to hit you back. That's beautiful. That type of shit. I think that's raw. So that's why the real reason as I got older, I gravitated toward, I think Malcolm X's journey and the stuff he was talking about was dope, standing Mm -hmm. on it. But I think I gravitated toward Dr. King because at the end of his uh, life, he was preaching economics. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, talk about black community the black community in a certain way the melanated community but they people rarely bring up the economic disparities between black people and not just white people but uh immigrants and everybody else in this country and you know it's almost as if like you know they don't consider you look at a situation and be like oh why don't black people own more housings houses or go have better communities or schools but then they excuse things like redlining, the concept of redlining in which, mm-hmm. you know, black people were barred from getting loans to go buy houses specifically. And they can only buy houses in certain areas. And these areas weren't giving or because these areas would be able to be built up by the property value and, you know, built up by these communities. It translated because, you know, you know, you get um, public schools and and public type of um uh brick and mortars and just a pub anything public from libraries you get that from taxes so if you're in a community and you pay property taxes or the tax dollars that you have they're gonna build up your community like the public schools and things like that so there's a reason why in some areas some public schools are better than certain private schools because they've been being built up for oh since 1940 so 1940 to 19 or 2020 how many years is that? That's 80 years. If you build something for 80 years versus something not being built or being dug a, a hole in the ground, it's going to be a huge disparity. And I think that's what Dr. King was trying to even out. And I, I, I really enjoyed his method because, you know, at the end of the day, we can fight all we want. And, I do, and that is the American way. And I think it would have been dope to see um, Malcolm X and Dr. King come together in their ideologies with uh, Malcolm's um, discipline and the militant way he lived, but with uh, uh, Martin Luther King's, you know, want to economically be, uh, have a, not uh, equality, but equi- equity, you know, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of things in this uh, country black people are owned, are owed, 
But you know, you know, sometimes stuff don't work out that way. Yeah. I definitely would have been following Malcolm. And I'm talking about the early Malcolm, not mm-hmm. not after he came back right from, from his Africa. Yeah. I'm talking about the militant nigga with the guns and the rifles and he was and preaching a we segregation. He was yeah, he was preaching segregation. It's good. Yeah. Because I think segregation is the end of segregation is the downfall of black people. Black for sure. People. And you know, we know this from uh Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, being one of the most amazing black communities, I only say black, communities that has existed in the United States. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, the heinous crime that is not taught today is, you know, the um just the dismantling of them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Every time every time black people are doing things together and it's it's successful. White America will try to steal the black people and be like, yo, you guys should stop doing it here and come do it over here. And what that does is it takes the black dollar in that community out of that community mm-hmm. and it, they bring it over to the, the white community. And that's why they are. This is like the NBA. I'm gonna use the NBA for example, or 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 baseball, the Negro leagues, right? Yeah. Jackie Robinson, true. One of the rawest baseball players ever, right? Yeah. Imagine if Jackie Robinson stayed in the Negro leagues. He'd be having a thousand home runs. These these the white people back then Aaron. they saw Jackie Robinson. He's like, damn, yeah. this motherfucker's good. Because yeah. back then, the Negro leagues, everyone was going there to see the games. Because mm-hmm. obviously, those were the most uh, talented, uh, exciting people to watch. Yeah. So these people over here in this league was like, okay, well, mm-hmm. let's take this one nigga, bring him over here to make our shit popular. Put him through bullshit. Yeah, and put him through all that bullshit. And I hate to say, but Jackie Robinson was a coon for that, for Man. leaving the Negro League. You know, it's crazy. I respect Jackie Robinson, but I've, I've been hearing as of late that, you know, he really had a um a certain disposition about black people to a degree. Man, fuck Jackie Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> hey man. But anyway, uh um, how you feel. That's beautiful. <laughs> you gotta say it. So San Francisco, you were born and raised in San Francisco. What do you saying? how do you feel about all that shit that's going on with you with these youngsters? You see all over social media, right? Um Mm-hmm. The cars getting broken into, uh, robberies left and right, mm-hmm. and it's usually the youth who is doing this. Yeah. My question to you is: When we were a child, right? Yeah. Well, I'm way older than you, but when I was a child, and before my time, when my dad was a child, right? Yeah. You had strong black men that you can turn on the TV and see. You can see Malcolm X. You can see Martin Luther King. Uh, you can see uh, Huey P. Mm-hmm. Right? Or or organizations like the Black Panthers. Um, uh, you, uh, like, you strong leaders, right? Respectable men yeah. that you can watch and be like, damn, I want to be like that. Exactly. Nowadays, the youth, who who who's out there that the youth of today can be like, Damn, 
this guy's respectable. He carries himself where he's not walking around with his pants down on his ass, right? So do you think that the reason the youth is going so crazy nowadays is because the people that they look up to are like niggas like NBA young boy, uh, uh, TikTokers, right? Like little streamers and shit who are doing mm-hmm. dumbass shit like pranks and shit and mm-hmm. getting famous and getting popular. Do you think the the youth are not being guided because they don't have people like we did mm-hmm. growing up? I think that's definitely uh, one of the reasons. You know, um, America since the nineteen sixties has. And before that as well, you can look up since uh, the inception of the country has went through um, decades in which they intentionally dismantled the black male and black leaders. So, you know, when Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were outspoken and doing what they needed to do, what did they do to show us an example of what happens to those people if you do that? What's going to happen to you? Mm. You know, you're going to get killed. And before that, you know, people don't talk about this. In slavery, when they had um, masculine or people call it, say, quote unquote, alpha males, or you have one of the strongest and outspoken black men in the community, they would do a, a concept called buck busting, mm-hmm. and it, in which they would either castrate or rape the biggest and the strongest black men to give. And this is a method they use in horses to break not only him, but to break the whole congregation or the whole a group of people. Yeah. So, you know, right now what they did they to will us, also rape. They will also rape their wives in front of them man. to break up that household because the man won't respect the wife anymore. Exactly. And it's just like, damn, how can I love you if I watch you get raped? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, um, in a way, metaphorically, that's what's happening to our people over these last, or not these last, in, our, in America. It happened physically during slavery and most likely during Jim Crow. But also, 1950 would have or 1960s what happens? Our biggest black leaders getting killed get killed. 1970s that continues to happens. But what happens then? Welfare, and now it's a financial raping. You know, black man, you're not you're barred from this. You can't have this. So your woman, your woman is the only person in an Anglo-Saxon Western society in which you, they are the breadwinner. So we're not gonna let you get jobs, and on top of that, we're gonna give them money, and you can't be in a house. What does that do? That not only dismantles the black family, but now it it changes the energy. Now where we have a in a black why black homes was so uh, prominent and and uh, so working together so well is because they had an egalitarian home in which both people, both masculine and feminine energy, coincided with one another and took roles. You know what I mean? And they played their role well. That's my uh, alarm. <laughs> you know, fitness is key, and I'm gonna get back on this. There's a message, but um, uh, so you know, the 70s are dismantled it by that, and now it's disproportionate. So now in the 70s, you have a situation where you know the women become the breadwinners just off of welfare alone. So okay, then the 80s comes. What happens? Crack, crack ec- epidemic. You know. It it br- brought back the financial uh, uh, equity or the financial evenness between our dynamic. And during this time, you can watch, I think BMF does a good job of doing it, where you show people selling crack, but 
people are selling crack in two-parent household. Because why? You feel me? These families stay together. But also, the if a lot of these men that were in the families, now you can financially support your family, you know, because you're selling drugs. Now you can have a family. But then what happens in the 90s? Mass incarceration. But simultaneously in the 80s, we're selling crack to our home community, which dismantles our community, which is breaking us down. So now you look in the in the 80s, who has all the money? Who are you looking up to? Who's pr- providing and paying the bills? The drug dealers. And then, you know, what our culture pimping has always been, you feel me, something that you look up to. The pimps are always the flyers. Why they have to attract the women? You got to be fresh. You know what I'm saying? So in the 80s, 80s and you looking up to pimps and drug dealers. These are the people that are flashy, that look good. And and black people, we have, we've always been told we're worthless. So a lot of our value has been instilled in optics, how we look. That's why. And it's also uh, uh, something before uh, we even got to black American culture. It's been seen for years and years and decades in different cultures that black people have always enjoyed jewels and looking nice and gold and all these different things because and culturally, we've always had some of the biggest resources, mm-hmm. uh, the most resources. Why not put these diamonds and gems in my teeth like the Aztecs and the Incas did, but also like these people in Africa who had all these resources did. Mansa Musa, for a period of time, was the most wealthiest person in the world. Mm-hmm. But to get back on track. then He and, also was the first person to sell to the to America, but they don't teach you that. Mm-hmm. Well, sell uh, just trade. No sell. He took a boat and came to America before uh, George Washington did. Crazy, right? Or, whatever that or uh, Christopher Columbus. Christopher, <laughs> Christopher nah, Columbus, right. yeah. And, it was, I, and Cortez, you feel me? The uh, Spanish seller Cortez, Christopher Columbus, the Portuguese, backed by... Because there were black people in America before the slaves oh, came. Man. Af- at- um, not Africa, but California is named after a black Amazonian woman on, named Khalif, Khalifa. Or, Ka- Khalifa, and they Come changed on, it to California. Look up the Omic heads. Mm. I... Uh, uh, discovered by Ivan Van Serptimus, mm-hmm. uh, the the professor who focuses his research on the exodus out of Africa for exploration into the uh, Middle Americas in the Latin, what we call now Latin America. So, you know, in 1980s, who are you looking up to? You're looking up to the first, the dismantling of the family in the 70s. Second, you're looking up to people who are participating in illegal activity, even though that's who you looked up to before, too. So in the 90s, what happens? Mass incarceration. What also happens simultaneously while this happens? The uh, uh, corporations start investing into rap music. So now the popular groups are no longer public enemy, no longer the people who are talking about uh, uh, good rap. Will Smith won the first Grammy. There's no longer positive rap that these corporations are investing into. You're investing into gangster rap. So music is one of the biggest mediums. Up until social media... T- uh, even though um, TV was pretty seen or pretty translatable to everybody, the biggest uh, form of communication, I, I believe, next to word of mouth was radio. So now you're hearing all this stuff. And in the 90s, not only do you simultaneously get gangster rap being at the top and we all watching them, but also mass incarceration. So all the coolest people are in jail. So what does that breed? Feel me? 2000s, we're looking up to this. We're looking up to this culture of men who are in jail, gangster rappers, or or people who are uh, just disrespectful. And that's not a, of the full compass of everybody. And I don't think it reset until the 2010s. But a lot of times, these kids that were born in the early 2000s, 
the people they looked up to were the rappers participating in all of this. And I feel like this is the first time in history because the thank thank you to social media, we can create our own narrative. Mm. And then now people like you and I, people who have a positive message are put out there and now they can be seen and people can pick now. And that, the only thing about it is now the people who are conscious and on their stuff and preaching a positive message, you just got to be cool. And now that we get to create our own own money and create our own opportunities, the one thing about the cool people is you still had, back in the day, you still had to get a corporate job usually at a white place and you had to assimilate, you know, and that when you assimilate, you use, you lose your sauce. But now it's a situation where like we can run our own businesses. You can be a wallow and gilly and own your podcast or mm. you can be like shout out to is what it is cameron and mace and re- revolutionize the sports podcast and now everybody's trying to catch up to them so you know i think it's going to take some time but it's a matter of you know uh you know redoing the equilibrium and and that's why i feel like my responsibility is and as much as i could probably chill here and from my life and just I, if I quit doing music today and when it did something else, I would be happy. It's, it's, it's more than about me. It's about the message. It's about the people I inspire every day. That's why yesterday I did a, uh, um, a show in the community I grew up in. That's why today I went to the Pop Warner football team that I played for because for them to see me and to touch me and to be like, wow, you graduated college, you were in a movie, you make music. And you're still cool. Wow, you smell good. And all this other, <laughs> and you know, funny stuff to where it's like, well, you're really here. You do this. I've seen you do this. And you're here with me. I can be, I can be you. And I, my the biggest thing is no success without successors. So my goal is to get this next generation to be better than me. I got a, uh, a bachelor's. You, I need you to get a master's. Mm-hmm. I was in a movie. You need to be a director, producer, and in 10 movies. I made, I made, I got this music popping. You need to have a, a hundred times you need a hundred times more songs than me so you know and i know the only way i do that is legacy i have to push for a high bar so people can want to get up there because you don't have lebron james you don't have lebron james and kobe Bryant without michael jordan mm-hmm. you know what i mean so and it's it's about time we did that you know and we can reset the narrative yeah. you know what i mean so so what uh what do you have what are you working on now? Do you have anything coming? I know oh, you man. just dropped a, a new single. Yep, dope. That we just heard. Um what else do you got going on? Uh cinematography wise, I just saw my second film, second feature film. Uh I'm I'm not at liberty to say what film it is, but it will be out, I believe, in twenty twenty four. I'm very excited about that. It's mm-hmm. a you know, I'll, uh I've been wanting to get into acting a lot more. So, you know, that doing that let me know, oh, I can really be on. I knew before because, you know, I was, I had a crying scene in my first movie and I had the pleasure to share the screen with not only some dope actors from San Francisco, Jamal True Love, uh, Milk Mandela, Javon uh, Parker, Javon Parker, excuse me, Jimmy Fails, but also one of the shining stars of our generation, uh, Jonathan Majors, and to watch how he acts and be across his, face to face with him and, you know, take his advice. But also in this uh, last film, to be on a a set similar like that, but this uh, Hollywood came to the Bay for this film and it just was like, you know, me being around these people who work in Hollywood every day and they're saying, man, you Hollywood, you're a superstar. You got it. You can go do this. I I think that's a a lane I need to go get in more. 
So definitely. Do you being around Jonathan Majors? Do you believe that he smacked that bitch? Fuck no. Like that's the furthest away. <laughs> if you when you meet him, it's the furthest away from his character. And then once all the facts came out, oh, you found out uh, the police try to uh, encourage this woman to do this or say she got hit. Mm-hmm. You find out Jonathan Majors was the one who called the police and they have video evidence of him being assaulted. And you find out she fled the country and actually got charged to... Um, yeah, I don't know all them details now. Yeah, you didn't know that. That's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But that's because it wasn't pushed as big as him being an abuser. Of course not. You know what I'm saying? And she actually fled the country... The the most recent time um he was in court, it was a countersuit to charge her for assault by uh the district or by the prosecutor of uh, the city of New York, I believe. Hoes like that who be just be lying and shit. Uh, I think them hoes should be locked up. And for but sure, nothing man. happens to them bitches. And that's what she was about to get about to happen, but she fled the country and hasn't been back since. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it comes to Jonathan Majors, when I met him, he was uh um he was method acting, but he was a very down-to-earth individual. He was um, a very passionate individual. Mm-hmm. He was locked in in his craft. You can see how with the 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 time he was spending to do the role in Last Black Man in San Francisco, he didn't come out of... The only time he came out of character was I had this thing on set where I was like, man, I want to um, see if I could get people out of character. And I got him one time. And he, he was like, all right. And then we had some banter while we was rolling. And he got me back because, you know, he's just a um, true professional connoisseur of his craft but um that was the only time i seen him get out of character your your role on that movie were you uh i mean i saw the movie yeah. but i didn't know you back then to point yeah. you out were you uh i'm guessing was your role one day that group of kids yep. that were like rapping or something or clowning uh exactly yeah okay, okay. so I, I the role that where i got to um show my skills was uh after our one of our friends got killed mm. and then I, I i had to cry with jimmy so, you know, yeah, but that was, uh, it was a dope experience. How did you get that uh, part? Man, just being in the right place at the right time with the right mindset. When I dropped out of school, I said I wanted to act and I wanted to make music. I went to my partner's house. We were just recording in his room. It was like more, it was like a basement, but it was a nice ass room. They had a bookshelf in there. We were recording music and then Jimmy and Joe came in and said, hey, we need to use the room in 10 minutes. We, we writing a movie. And I said, writing a movie? I want to be in this movie. Mind you, every day. I, since I came back from New Orleans, I was like, I'm, I, I need to act. I need to act. Mm. So then I'm in there. I'm like, I want to, I just saw the opportunity and I jumped on it. I read with them and I was like, you need to come to the our first table read. And I didn't think anything of it because, you know, we're in somebody's room at this time. And then we, I go to this place in Chinatown and it, you don't, it doesn't look like anything outside. You go in, it's a huge room, look hella nice inside with a big ass table. They got producers and p- shit there that want to invest in a movie. I'm like, what the fuck? And I was nervous as fuck, and I read, and I thought I, I thought I did a terrible job. And then a the producer, Kalia Neal, pulled me to the side, and she's like, "Yeah, it's nice to see somebody from Oakland." And I was like, "I'm from San Francisco." She's like, "Oh, your energy is just so Oakland, like blah blah blah, man." <laughs> she was like, oh, "And she, she loved me." I auditioned for every part in that Greek chorus. That was the group of the dudes, mm. and I thought I didn't get a part. I put one of my folks on because I got put on, and I thought I didn't get a part, and then. The director was like, man, we're going to write you in the film. The same thing they just did with my last film. So, mm. you know, I was just right place, right time, right energy, and just lucky. And God was looking out for me. So now you're 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 focusing more on... Uh... The music is the vehicle. Acting is the destination. Okay. So it's like, I do music every day. 
And I'm going back to that. Like I, I just dropped a project called Still Winning Volume Two. I'm about to drop a football project, which in which I made music for not only the uh, Pop Warner and Little League football teams, but also for the 49ers, uh, the Colorado football team, and the Cal Bears. Um, I we just locked in, and I'm gonna be um making music and being their uh artist that helps push their culture on mm-hmm. Cal Berkeley. So that's pretty dope. And then other than that, um, I got like probably like eight projects that are in progress um of those i would say six the recording is done and then it just needs uh two are mix and mastered and the rest need to get mixed and mastered and two kind of like maybe need like one or two more songs mm-hmm. so i was like i got a lot of music in the vault and now it's just about putting it out the right way mm-hmm. with the right visuals with the right campaign you know and making it be bigger than anything i've done mm-hmm. and you know that's just a you know locking in you know what i'm saying so nice well, um, we've been talking all day. <laughs> Dark outside. When I got here, it was light. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. You know what I'm saying? You didn't have to, but you did it anyway. Real one. Um, happy to be here. Thank you for the invite, man. Yeah. Uh, everyone check them out. I mean, you don't you don't need me to say it. No, no, no. But you know what I'm saying? To, check them out. Uh, future film, films coming. Music coming. For sure, man. Acting. Politician probably run for mayor. Probably, man, we need that. I don't know if I want that responsibility. We need that. I mean, I'd rather just be a great responsibility, great reward. Sure, true, man. Maybe one day. Yeah. Well, Stunham, you got any last words, man? Um, I wish the best for everybody. I hope anything you worrying about, you let that go because you know worrying is only praying for things to go wrong. And I I hope you lock in with your true self. Tell them where they can find you, Stunham Man Zero Two. Everything on that's on all platforms, all streaming. S T U N N A M A N zero two. You put that in, you'll see me. I mean, and don't forget, we still winning. This is Everyday Celebrity Podcast, and we are out. You.